0: Oh, there we go. Good morning, everyone. Great. Uh, Super excited to be here uh, for a number of reasons. One is just a great joy to gather with you guys on a Sunday uh, to sing together, to pray together, to have God's word poured over us together. But today uh, in particular uh, is an awesome, epic Sunday because we have a special guest Bringing the word to us this morning, it really is going to be an incredible treat. Like my wife said, we still are in the book of James, a series titled "The Grind of the Grace," and it's been incredible. It really, really has Uh, journeying through this book together and unpacking some of the golden nuggets that we find in the scriptures. And so, this morning we have a an international guest. The only reason I say that is because he currently lives in France, but he actually is from Africa. Um, We have Bat with us this morning, who's going to bring the word Bat, is married to Vanessa. They live uh, currently in the north of France, where he's wrapping up his PhD in New Testament studies. But he has theological degrees uh, from Stellenbosch. Uh, We will not judge him harshly for that. Um, and and Wales, and so uh, a a real academic, but at the same time has massive experience in church uh, ministry and church leadership. He served in uh, South Africa, in Zimbabwe, and in the UK, and so he comes here this morning not only to give us head knowledge, but at the same time to help us apply it in our everyday lives, and so with that, Bat, I'd love for you to come up, uh, and I'm going to pray for you, brother, uh, as you bring the word to us like fresh bread. Uh, and how we are in desperate need of it. Would you join me as I I pray for our brother, Bat? Father, we are incredibly thankful uh, for this opportunity uh, to have your word uh, taught to us this morning. And so, Lord, I'm asking that uh, you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our minds, that we would receive from you, Lord. Uh, We want to engage with you. We want to meet you, Lord. And so would you do so through your servant, Bat, as he brings uh, the word to us? Uh, Would he preach boldly and with conviction? Uh, Would he uh, give us uh, the nuggets that we need to apply this, Father God, to, to live lives that are pleasing to you? And so, Lord, I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to move in a profound and powerful way. I pray against the evil one this morning whose desires are to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, Lord, I ask that you would stand in Bat's body, that you would think through his mind, speak through his vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, may they be a sweet fragrance to you. God, you are our King and you are our Redeemer. Would you have your way in this place this morning? In Jesus' beautiful, beautiful name we pray. Amen.
1: Morning, everyone. Dumela. Mmm. Um, you forget. Oh, that was louder. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, good to be with you today. My name is Batanai Manika. I'm a Zimbabwean. As as Ona said, uh, I'm married to Vanessa. Um, I've had the privilege of living in about four countries and studying and working there also. And today it's a joy to be doing one of the things that... um, I believe is most important in life, which is to engage with the word of God. I am not the word of God, I'm just a vessel, so to speak. Um, But when the preacher opens up his mouth, somehow God speaks to our own hearts. So it's imperative that we hear the voice of God behind the voice of the preacher. And it's also important that uh, we check our own hearts because right now, Things will go through your mind. I don't agree with this guy. What does he know? He doesn't know my context. Preach to yourself as you're being preached to. For this is a very opportune moment for you to grow in Christ as we hear from the word of God. We are a people of story. We are a people of story so much so that who we are is engraved in history. Different cultures have different stories of their ancestors, how they came about, who they are, who their relatives were, who they fought with, and how they have been shaped to become a people. But there is a different story that comes from a different place that defines every single individual who belongs to this king. And this story forms the primary foundation upon which each and every Christian builds their identity. Something powerful happened when you became a Christian, if you are a Christian. You were radically transformed, changed into a new creation, and brought into a new family, which means your history, your identity, and your future has been reorganized around a particular person who died and rose from the dead. Therefore, Your primary identity is not Afrikaans, Zulu, Tosa, or Ndebele, but fundamentally, you are a child of God. And so as you begin from this perspective, everything else is interpreted from this premise. And if you identify primarily as Afrikaans, as Zulu, or Tosa, and then bring in your Christian identity after that, what tends to happen is you live a conflicted life may I invite you to raise your understanding of what we call the meta-narrative, the big story of what God has done in history, what God is doing today, and what God will do in the future. And this meta-narrative is centered on one champion. It is not you. It is not me. You are not the hero. You are not the center. You are insignificant, dare I say. You are an extra in this story. This story is about Jesus. And he is the focal point, the foundation. He is the beginning. He is the middle. And he is the end of the story. It's all about him. So we begin with Jesus. Not with your struggle. Not with your desire. Not with your longing. Not with your desire to lose weight or to get married or to get a new job. That's not the primary story. Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning. And this defines everything else. Amen. Today we're going to look at um, James. James 3, we're going through the grind of grace. It is a grind. Scandalizo, the Greek said. Grace, scandal. Not that scandal on television. <laughs> We're looking at grace as scandal to those who do not belong to the family of God. Foolishness to others who think, ha, what's that all about? And I just want to open up our understanding based on chapters 3 of James verse 1 to 12. I'll be reading from the NIV 84 predominantly, but I'll dip into the ESV as we go along. Now, each sport has language of its own. You know, tennis talks about juice, or juice, juice, forehands, cross-court forehand, backhand. I like that one because um, it's quite useful when you're swatting a fly. Football, Ishibop. We talk about bicycle kicks, throw ins, offside, rugby, scrums. Every sport has a language particular to itself. Now, some people will think that chess is not a sport, but I beg to differ. In chess, we talk about diagonals, we speak about ranks and files, and common to most people is the language of check and checkmate. i would invite you today to walk with me as we check and checkmate different things in our own hearts and around us so that we can live with the knowledge that the king is safe. Not that king, but you as an individual. When you hear check in chess, basically what you're being told is you are in danger. When you hear checkmate, ha ha ha, ha, Like a vulnerable king, the Christian is an individual who is a follower of Jesus. But like a vulnerable king, oftentimes life throws things at us that causes us to stop and wonder if we are really Christian. Because life is difficult. And life asks the question, check and depending on how you relate to this meta-narrative, this grand story of what Jesus has done, depending on how you are anchored in this story, your response to that check will be variable. Today, I'm not talking about Magnus Carlsen, Vichy Anand, Gary Kasparov, Bobby Fischer. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. And we're going to read from J- James 3, verse 1 to 12. It says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we would we teach, will be judged more strictly. If you're a feminist, I'm like, Ah, my brothers, my brothers. It's gender inclusive when I'm in. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able to keep his whole body in, Check, when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can't the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of a body because it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest What a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of a body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With a tongue, we praise the Lord, our God, our Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring. My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Father, this is for you, to the glory of your name, to the empowerment of your people and the expansion of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, before we launch into unpacking these 12 verses, allow me to give a bit, bit of background. When I was taught how to preach, they always told me three things. Context, context, context. Can I hear you say it with me? It's like a rhyme. Context, context. Oh, I can't hear you. Context, context, context. If you read the Bible without context, you are in danger. There are three levels of context. There is historical context. So we need to know what's going on in history, in the time of James. There is literary context. We need to know what's going on around the scriptures because any scripture taken out of context is the pretext for danger. So you don't just pick it up. Oh, blessed when you walk in and blessed when you walk out and think that is apply, applicable in it. No, we don't do that. Context. And then there's contemporary context, where we are, where we, where we live. And we responsibly read historical, literary, and contemporary context together for us to hear what God will say to us today. Amen. Moving on. James is a letter that was written. Some people believe, oh, we don't know who this guy is, but I strongly believe that it is the brother of Jesus who later became the leader of a church at Jerusalem. And James writes interestingly. He writes differently to Paul and the other apostles. And some people have thought James is actually anti-Pauline, when actually James and Paul are speaking about the same thing from different angles. One complements the other. Martin Luther had a problem with James. He even pushed James to the end of a Bible because he wanted it somehow to fall off the cliff of the Bible. He called James an epistle of straw. In other words, if you want to light a fire, just use James. Um, So, this is how he struggled with James because he found in James a message that was not congruent with his understanding of justification by faith. James is not anti-justification by faith. He emphasizes that your faith is proven by your works. You can't claim to be justified and not produce the fruit. The evidence of you being a child of God, being part of this grand narrative, is that you change in identity. One day I was working with my brother. He's uh, three years older than I. He lives in Coventry. We, we had this barber. If you're a black guy in here, you know your relationship with your barber is very personal. You don't go to any other barber. You've got one guy who knows the contours of your head, and you go there bi-weekly, and when you sit in there, it's like a for women, maybe a massage. For us guys, it is our therapeutic moment. Because the conversation you have with your barber is personal. He is your g Your barber is your man. My barber here in South Africa is called Sego. He's from Nigeria. He's married to a Zimbabwean girl. And we have great conversations in, 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 in the UK. His name was Dan Big, Ghanaian guy. I know my barbers by name. Why? Because they know my head with every contour and shape. But never mind. <laughs> Walking to the barbershop with my brother. And then this guy looks at me and he was like, brothers? Yeah, because our walk is the same. Friends, when we become part of a family of God, there's something that is transferable between us, regardless of where we have been been or where we are from originally. There is a common identity that is centered on Christ crucified. And so when we read about what's going on in James 3, what we are being invited to is to realize that the virtue of a Christian is common across the board. Today's sermon will be covered under three headings. The first one check our presumption to teach, check our boastful pride, check our hypocrisy in worship. First point check, think chessboard, check our presumption to teach. A few weeks ago, my wife and I took a walk to Belgium. Basically, it's like from here to that car over there. You can cross the border without a passport. It's fine. So we went to just walk about, just to exercise as normal. And we felt perkish. I'm like, let's get a coffee. So we went for, to this coffee place, 1960s themed diner. We got in there. We had, a, we had a drink and we enjoyed ourselves. And she had some, uh, some funny French food. And I just had a cappuccino. Now as it was time for us to go, I stood up to go pay. When I, and I realized that actually, oh, I'd left my wallet at home. My wife didn't have cash on her. And on this particular day, this restaurant or cafe was not using card. So we needed to pay by cash. So our stereotype was switched on. Black guy with an Indian looking woman, unable to pay for his food. What I was seeing in my mind was the police, and secondly, I was seeing, ah, uh, I'm going to do the dishes, and thirdly, I was like, ah, this is prison, because black guy in Belgium, you are alone. <laughs> Until my wife pulled out our checkbook, who still uses those, eh? They still do in France, our checkbook, she pulled it out and she signed that check, I'm like, I'm free, I've escaped Slavery. Friends, the moral of the story is this, we drank that coffee and enjoyed that food without counting the cost, without knowing how we were going to pay. And today as a Christian, it is important for us to recognize that there is a need for us to count the cost of what James highlights in verses 1 to 2 of James chapter 3. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. A teacher, you may ask, what is a teacher bad? If you open up Ephesians 4 from verse 7 to about 16, you will hear the story of one who ascended on high. And when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. Some were apostles, some were prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors. And the teacher there is not an individual who walks around holding books and instructing people in a professorial manner, but rather is an individual who teaches the gospel. Somebody who explains the gospel within the early church setting, and we still have those today. Friends, the teacher was an individual who was highly respected because they even regarded that person like a rabbi. So the honor associated with the role of teaching was quite high. Ego, some people like to be called teachers desire teaching, fought for teaching because they thought, hey, I will be exalted and regarded the man. So James is saying, not many of you should become teachers because do you know there is a cost to count? The judgment that God exerts upon a teacher is stricter than a normal Christian. The reason being, the teacher has been instructed and has become a custodian of the gospel. And not only do we teach with our speech, but we also teach with our lives. The two are not separate. They are one and the same thing. Now, James is not saying one must not desire to teach. He is not even saying that teaching is bad. He is, however, pointing to a body part, an organ that one uses when teaching. He is telling us that the part, that part of a body, can move against the grain of teaching when not checked. Oh, how we love to be inflated, to make ourselves bigger than we really are. How we love to tell people the best version of ourselves. How we love to be the strong one and not the vulnerable one. How we love to to be celebrated and not to be mocked or abased. James warns us, do not just stumble into teaching, but count the cost associated with teaching. And the cost is this. A teacher is an individual who was prone to sin also because they use their mouth to communicate the gospel. So it is easy for a teacher to fall into sin through their speech. Uh, when we preach, just throw in the story and embellish it and make it look nice. A little frill there a little frill there. And then you are the man because your illustration was so helpful when actually sort of based on truth. Oh, just tell them a lie so that you look good as you proclaim the truths of the gospel you are misrepresenting. Now, teachers are people of people gifts to the church. So a teacher does not possess the gift. The teacher or a teacher is the gift. And these gifts in Ephesians four, as we I'm not gonna read it because we don't have enough time. These gifts in Ephesians four are people gifts. So the person is the gift. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 12, when we read about those charismatic giftings, the gifts are separate from the person, and those ones are given by the Spirit. These ones are given by the ascended Christ. Are we getting this? If you open up Psalm 68, there is a story about a king who ascends on high, and he receives gifts. And this is what Paul is basing the scripture on. In Ephesians 4, the king ascends on high, but he gives gifts to the church. And the purpose is this, so that each and every individual will come to unity in the faith and maturity in Christ. The role of a teacher is not to elevate themselves or to use speech to look good, but fundamentally it is to serve the church so that the church will come to maturity. The teacher's role is not about the teacher. It is about the Christ who is inhabiting inhabiting the people of God. It is to help the church to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And this does not just apply to the teacher. It applies to the apostle. It applies to the evangelist. It applies to the pastor. It applies to all those gifted by God by his grace. We are servants. We don't load it over. We are servants. And Christianity is characterized by this countercultural identity where we actually serve and don't desire to be served because we are modeling the very example of our King. My question then becomes Are you that kind of individual? who has a teaching gift or who is a teacher and desires to be elevated. Your participation in this gathering is only motivated by the limelight. Are you the kind of individual who uses your speech to draw people to yourself so that you can get a platform for you to look good? Friends, the Bible invites us to a different way of thinking. It is not a way of thinking that is born of a meta narrative that is not of Christ. It is a way of thinking born of the abased meta narrative. He who was king became a slave. And this is the path we follow. Meaning if you're arrogant, if you're proud, And if you use spiritual gifting or gifting from God not to serve but to exalt oneself, you are in danger of God's judgment. Friends, maybe in here and you feel insecure in the knowledge of Christ, your understanding of the theological components of who Christ is and what he has done is not really well formed and you feel insecure. And the number of books you have read makes you feel insecure because you haven't read much. Maybe you are here and you compensate for your perceived lack of insecurity by adopting speech that is inconsistent with the gospel. Maybe you are in here and you inflate narratives to look good when you teach. Check. Check. Don't fabricate stories to appear superior when you teach. Check. Don't teach what you don't know to appear honorable. Check. Don't compromise the gospel for you to look good. Check. Friends, the gospel is about Christ who lived a sinless life, was crucified on behalf of every human being, alive or dead. He died for everyone to pay a penalty that no one could pay for themselves with their own life. We were supposed to pay because we were sinful. We are sinful. But Christ in his great mercy and love laid down his own life in our place. He died a criminal's death, crucified to a Roman cross. He was resurrected on the third day when He imputed his own righteousness to the sinner. And we were declared sinless before God. So much so that our legal standing before God is that of not guilty. Not because we achieved it in our own strength or merit, but rather because Jesus did it on our behalf. Friends, those who trust in this Jesus are also recipients of a great eternal hope where death does not have final say on their lives because the champion who conquered death rose from the dead victorious and he's coming back to take all those who believe in him and he's going to rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you're a believer, can I hear you say, Amen. The beautiful gospel that those who are undeserving are made recipients of God's great grace, God's riches, and this is the message: we cannot compromise by our sinful desire to elevate ourselves, because we didn't do it. It is Jesus, the Christ, who secured it for us. Second thing: the teachers, or those who use their speech should be attentive to his judgment. There so is a judgment that comes from being scrutinized by people within your community. Like when you leave this place or when we leave this place, you'll be driving hey, ah, that boy preached really good, huh? Ah, I don't think he preached really good. Ah, I, mean, yeah, I don't understand what was going on there because the, re- the reason why I don't speak really good is because he didn't really touch that scripture. That scripture, that is normal. It happens. We critique one another but that's not the judgment that James is speaking about here. The judgment James is speaking about here is a future judgment that is coming to every single human being. And in that judgment, the Christian is not being judged on whether or not they are going to be saved. They are being judged on whether or not they are going to receive rewards. Friends, there is a loss of reward that is painful. If you have siblings and you see your sibling receiving a gift because they behaved well and you did not behave well and are not given that gift, there is a pain that comes to your heart. You are still a child, but you've lost something. And we hear the story of Esau in the Old Testament, and we hear it again in Hebrews, where Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. There was weeping, there was crying, but Esau remained the son in the household but he lost something. May it never be that we lose things because we have not obeyed. May we receive everything God has for us in rewarding us in the new heavens and the new earth. Because judgment for the Christian is not a judgment of whether you're saved or not, but rather it is a judgment of whether you are rewarded well or not. Douglas Moore says, Douglas Moore is a commentator. He says, when we undertake to guide others, others in the faith, we must be especially careful to exhibit the fruit of that faith by the way we live. In other words, may our words and speech match up. Next point I want to highlight is our boastful parade. Our boastful parade. When I left the UK to come back to Zimbabwe. I went um, to visit my uncle and he was an elder in this church. But then I'd um, I'd had the privilege of working in the UK as an associate pastor in an AOG church. So, typical to the tradition of his churches, they were now calling me pastor this and pastor that, uh, which is okay, fine. So I got to his church and uh, when they heard that I'd just come from the UK, they moved me from the back seat to the front seat. Now, okay, if you want me to sit there, that's fine. And they forced me to preach on that day. I had no choice but to preach. Now, I have no problems preaching, but there was something in me that felt, oh, you are in the front seat now. A couple of weeks later, I went back to the same church. And I thought, ah, I now have a seat up front. I sat in somebody else's chair. And the wife came to me and she said, hey, This is daddy's chair. It is not your chair. Can you move, please? Two different reactions. And it left me confused. Because internally, externally, I was behaving all holy and all I am. It's okay, I'll sit in the back. But internally, there was a craving to be honored. A craving that was hidden in an exterior masquerade that says, I, no, it's fine, it's fine. False humility. Friends, check our boastful parade, masquerading as something that is not authenticity. He desires truth in the inner being, consistency. James 3 4 to 5. Or take the ships. As an example, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of a body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great, fo- what a great forest, rather, is set on fire by a small spark. In the ancient world, there was this phenomenon called honor and shame, and you were honored based upon. What family you were born into, you were honored if you were a man receiving more honor than a woman, you were honored if you were a conqueror in battle, you were honored if you had achieved something that changed the nation's course positively. And so, today we want to have financial security. The 21st century world is very much about financial security. In the ancient world, it wasn't about financial security, but it was about honor. And in the first century, people were actually located on honor structures, so much so that where you stood in an honor, on, on an honor platform meant you interacted with certain people and not with another. So honor was a regulating principle that controlled social interaction. And so when somebody says, I want to be a teacher motivated by an un-gospel perspective, their motivation is a motivation of honor. They want to be honored without being grounded in the meta-narrative of what Christ has done. And this is what James is speaking against. Today we do have honor structures. They are not as prevalent as in the first century. But honor can be a poisonous pursuit that is motivated by self and not By the gospel, the flavor of a Christian is that of counter culture where we are not those who lift ourselves up but are lifted up by somebody else. Friends, may I put this to you? The kingdom of God is inverted. If you want to be first, you've got to be last or learn to be last. If you want to gain in God's economy, I'm not speaking prosperity here, you've got to learn to be generous. If you want to be promoted, so to speak, in the works of God, there is a need for you to abase yourself. We are reminded also that humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. We are Leaders in Christianity are servants, something completely countercultural, exemplified by Jesus in John thirteen. He washes his disciples' feet. And often we say, Ah, oh, he washes his disciples' feet. That job was reserved for a slave. And people in the first century didn't have cars, which meant they wore sandals and they walked everywhere. So imagine having walked for 20 kilometers in a day and you coming to a household where a designated slave stood washing people's feet as they entered that household. That was your job fetching water to wash feet. Jesus assumes that role. These are not clean feet that have been manicured at body sense or pedicuted body sense. These are, these are not, they, they, there is no nail polish on Peter's thing going on there. This is dirty monkey feet. It is stinking, blisters and all. Yet Jesus assumes the role of a slave who washes the feet of his disciples, breaking the honor structure and saying, in the kingdom of God, the leader is the servant. Friends, if you are in here and you're motivated by self-exaltation, you are living counter-culturally to the flow of a gospel. Because fundamentally, the gospel is an invitation to those who are embodying the slave nature of Christ, where we become slaves to the purposes of God and serve God and others because we have realized that we were served to come alive. In other words, it's not about you. In other words, be humble. In other words, you ain't all that. Friends, in God's kingdom, the tongue does not enslave the person, but the person masters the tongue by first being transformed by the gospel, by the spirit's activity in regeneration, and they progressively become like Jesus. A believer is one whose mastery of a tongue is predicated by a transformation called being born again, to use Nicodemus language. I used to aspire to be a hip hop artist of the rugger style so I used to roll deep as MC bat <laughs> if you don't believe me I can drop a beat you me lord you me father me crush a batting and me never go along with the satanic thing bible is my guide I me god, I'm never go in change the bible is me god, my god that's what me want so I used to aspire to be an MC, but associated with my MC nature was a flowery type of language. Man, I used to cuss. But when I became a Christian, I did not fight to stop cussing. Somehow there was a transformation born of the Spirit. We do not fight or will ourselves to, oh, I want to be, oh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit as we cooperate with Him. Transformation is not me willing myself. It is me submitting to what God has done in Christ and what God is doing by his spirit to sanctify me. What do you need to change? Don't change it in your power. Submit to the gospel. Submit to the king who transforms and watch your transformation as you become more and more, like Christ himself. Maybe in here, and you feel the burning need to parade your accomplishments in every conversation. <laughs> I've got so many degrees. Oh, I studied at UCT. Oh, I did this. Oh, I went there. Holy, I was at, oh, I was actually flying from Frankfurt and there were these two women and, uh, behind me and they were telling each other, oh, I've been to this conference. I know this professor. Yes, and I wrote this paper. I'm like, I now know your whole life as I'm sitting here reading my book quietly. <laughs> Chill, don't boast. It is not you who did it. Guess who did it? It is Christ who did it. Your job, your money, your accomplishments, your family, it is not because you are good or amazing. It is Jesus. The Christian life is characterized by humility. And we do not fight to be humble. We are helped by the Spirit to be humble. And we are helped by the Spirit as we submit ourselves before the cross continuously. You are nothing. I am nothing apart from Christ. Ego, why should I boast? There's one place we should boast. We boast in the cross. We boast in the resurrection. We boast in the son who is coming again because he's the foundation upon which every Christian stands. Therefore, use your speech right don't use it to boast, but use it to celebrate the accomplishments of God's champion, Jesus Christ, the Son, the King of the heavens. Can I get an amen? Whew, Jesus, you're amazing. Maybe you're in here and you have choice names for white people, and you call them all kinds of names behind their backs. Yet you happen to be a Christian. Check. Maybe you are more concerned with boasting about who you know, where you've been, what you drive. Check. Maybe you boast about possessions and health and your discovery life plan. What you eat and your health regime. Check. Check it, mate lest you fall into the disciplining hands of the almighty God. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the almighty God. Remember, you remain a child, but you will lose reward if we do not check. Last point I want to highlight is our hypocrisy in worship. Our hypocrisy in worship. Reading from James 3, verse 9 to 12. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse man. We have been made, who have been made in God's likeness. And this is a call back to Genesis one twenty six to 27. And basically, James is saying, every human being, huh, sorry, I need to go a bit, I need to open this up a bit more. Do you know that when you build your house, your house is incomplete until you put a roof on it and until you furnished it. But your house remains incomplete until you put a picture of yourself on the wall. Is that true? I think it's true. If you walk into our place, you see pictures of me. If I were to see a picture of Menir here on my my wall, I'm like, who's this? He doesn't live here. (laughs) It doesn't work. So when you finish your house, you do the ornaments, you put a picture of yourself with your wife or with your friends or whatever. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created them as his temple. Where God dwells. And in there, he didn't hang a photograph, but he put a human being. So that when you see a human being, you are seeing an image of God, like a photograph hanging on a wall when a house is complete. Ego, an image cannot have an image of itself, because an image is imaging somebody else. And the image that is imaging God is human beings. That's why we don't make fun of the image, because by making fun of the image, we are making fun of who? God. That's why racism is a sin, because by calling people the K-word, we are actually making fun of who? God. That's why it's bad to call people all kinds of names that are related to their identity and person. Big, small, whatever name you use, stop it, because fundamentally, you are not insulting the person themselves, you are insulting God, because as the person sits or stands and walks, they are representing, imaging God in his cosmic temple, which is earth. Verse 9 to 12, James continues a logical theme that begins in chapter 1. The theme is centered on doubleness. If you're paying attention to the series, you would have heard of a double-minded man in chapter 1. In James 3, the same idea continues, double-minded or doubleness. And the idea here is basically hypocrisy. If you're familiar with Batman villains, which I double in the times, I do confess, there is a guy called Two-Face. He has a split personality that is regulated by the flick of a coin. You know that guy. Double-minded, doubleness. If you are familiar with Nguni Proverbs, then you may know the proverb, Ingwe meaning the leopard uses its skin to eat. What it represents is one thing. Oh, beautiful colors. Next thing you know, you are inside the belly of a leopard. Friends, hypocrisy is an enemy of authenticity. Authentic spirituality is often affected by Christians acting hypocritically. First, it tells us that it is evident when we make fun of people's appearance as human beings in our context where identity politics is playing a huge role and our history is not so beautiful as we heard earlier on. James is telling us not to be hypocritical. Calling siblings of the same family, like a church, all kinds of names is fundamentally attacking God himself. James is saying, a Christian who is a racist is a hypocrite. Check. A Christian who neither acts on behalf nor empathizes with the poor is a hypocrite. Check. A Christian who only associates with people of similar social standing, yet verbally denigrates Christians without privilege, be it historic privilege, be it white privilege, be it B-B-B-E-E privilege, check. But he doesn't end there. James uses strong Jewish imagery. He speaks about, can a fig tree produce this Contradictory fruit can spring water that is fresh come out of this system that is salt. He uses that kind of language, and what he's telling us is this: you need to understand the nature of shalom, and shalom is the Jewish expression which means God's rule and reign is as it should be. When shalom is disturbed, certain things happen. In Habakkuk three, we hear even though the fig tree does not blossom, nor there be there fruit on the vine. Yet, I will praise God. It means shalom has been disturbed. God is judging his people. Therefore, there is no wine and there is no wheat. And this is linked to Deuteronomy. God's blessing in Israel is an expression of God being happy with his people. When God was unhappy with his ancient people, he would judge them by sending them to exile or withholding the rain or causing the crop not to flourish. Now, when we read fruit that is incongruent with a symbol of Israel, which is a fig tree, what we hear in this passage is this. It is not so much about God judging, but rather it is that this person is not authentically Christian. Because a true Christian cannot produce contrary fruit. And there is nothing like a halfway Christian. So my question to you today is this. Are you hypocritical? Worshipping, because I'm using worship as in its broader sense. Your life not matching up with what God has done through his son. Are you an individual prideful and boastful? maybe a presumptuous teacher James tells us one thing to repent to confess your sin and repent because only the gospel corrects this wrong behavior associated with the wrong meta narrative It's only Jesus Christ is death and resurrection, which corrects this wrong behavior. We repent from our sin of hypocrisy caused by a tongue that is left unchecked, where we say one thing and live contrary. We repent from our sin of pride spoken by an untamed tongue. We check it. And from our desire of power without accountability we also repent from our desire of power, for power and honor without accountability. Friends, the gospel is centered on Jesus Christ. And if you're listening today, this is what James would say to us regarding the tongue. Check it, mate. Because if you do not, what ends up happening is you will lose your reward if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, this is an invitation for you to come into the family of God and to experience the beauty of using the tongue correctly to build up and not to destroy. One more thing. Diablo, as he said in the Greek, diabolos, Satan, is pictured and mirrored as a snake. And often the snake has a forked tongue. And the imagery James is using is don't associate with Diabolo's narrative, which is full of pride, full of self-exaltation, and full of presumptuous teaching that is crooked. Because that teaching is fundamentally demonic and will lead you to the loss of reward if you're a Christian, or to your destruction if you're not. So submit yourselves then to God, James 4, verse 7 to 10. Resist the devil, and and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, moan, and wail. This is not just, I'm sorry, God. This is an about turn. This is repentance, which moves through the sequence of feeling sorry for your sin, but also confessing your sin, and taking a different direction from your sin. This is not, oh, okay, I'm sorry, and then the cycle continues. The language here is that of sackcloth and ashes. Wail. When was the last time you wailed because of sin? Grieve. Moan. Change your laughter to mourning. Friends, sin is not only deceptive to the heart, it's also deceptive to the attitude. Teaches you to behave right in public when actually at heart level, no transformation has occurred. The deception of sin goes deeper. And it only takes Christ who can do a surgical work by his grace to change you from the inside out. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Shall we stand? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to hand over to, to your leaders. Maybe you in here and uh, you are not a Christian and you are asking questions about Christ, wondering, how do I become a Christian? Christianity is not a badge that we wear. It is a transformation of your person by the work of Jesus in dying in your stead. If you didn't know it, You and I are messed up. We are completely without hope. We are messed up. And we need a savior. We need a hero to rescue us from our mess. And this mess is not just a mess that is isolated. It affects everyone around you. It affects everything about you. And you are less than human because of this mess. And we call this mess sin. Your judgmental nature. Your critical nature. Your love to do what is wrong, to break the rules. That is not anarchy in the celebrated way. That is sin. And that has one destination. The destination of all sin and those who commit sin is death. Sin leads to death. But there has been an intervention in the grand story. And the intervention is this. Jesus has died in your place, paying the price for your sin, rescuing you and me to become new creations. And if you're not a Christian, today you can be rescued if you place your faith, your trust in what Jesus has already done for you in dying and rising from the dead. He died not isolated from your story, but he died in your place. He died in my place, taking upon him the punishment that was due you, due me. And because of that, if you trust him, you are rescued from your story that is leading to death, and you are grafted into a new story that leads to life. You are moved from darkness to life, and if you don't know it, you are dead right now and you'll be resuscitated by the Spirit of God who gives true, eternal life. The Gospel is this. God so loved you that he sent his only begotten Son that if you believe in him, you will not die, but you will live. Not only live, but live abundantly. True joy will be yours. True contentment will be yours. True love will be yours. Not any substitute, not any fake or excuse of the real thing. And this is your gift today. The gift of God to you. You don't pay for it. It is by God's grace, mercy, and love. And if you trust this Jesus, you are created anew. Born again. Into the family of God. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Thank you that He saves to the uttermost, that He does not leave anyone anyone behind those who trust in Him, but everyone who trusts in Him is saved. So today, God, I just pray for those who are struggling do not know what their lives will look like tomorrow those who are not in your family I pray that this message will somehow touch their hearts and that Lord you will soften their hearts and cause them to take a step towards you as you have already taken a step towards them through the death and resurrection of Christ. For those who here oh God who are already Christians I pray that there will be genuine repentance that we will let go of boasting let go of elevating ourselves above the story of Jesus, that we will let go, oh God, of thinking that we are the center when your son is. Forgive us of our trespasses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.